0: Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. In 1847, the Roscommon landlord, Captain Dennis Mahon, was shot dead a few miles from his home. As news of this assassination spread, bonfires would illuminate the night sky as the people of the surrounding region celebrated Mahon's violent death. Now, while the great hunger of the 1840s transformed the lives of millions, this killing The murder of Captain Dennis Mahan encapsulated the stark choices facing that generation of Irish people in one gripping story which is retold in this podcast. Now this episode is actually the studio recording of chapter 4 of my book A Lethal Legacy, A History of Ireland in 18 Murders. I'm delighted to be able to share it with you with the permission of the publisher HarperCollins because this is, without doubt, my favourite chapter of the entire book, and one I think you'll really enjoy as well. Through the life of one man, it cuts to the heart of the often hard-to-fathom events of the Great Hunger. It also gives you a sense of what the rest of the book is like, as it explores key events in our past through 18 murders. It looks at everything from emigration to the Irish Revolution and the Troubles, each one told through, as I say, the prism of one murder. Now, once you've finished this episode, you'll find links to the full audiobook as well as the ebook and hardback below. Now is the time to get your copy, particularly if you're thinking of buying it for Christmas. Don't do what I always do, leave it to the last minute and then stress worrying if it's going to arrive on time. Just avoid that headache and panic and get your copy today. And finally, just a word of thanks if you've bought the book already. Thanks so much, it really means an awful lot. Chapter 4 Eviction, 1847 For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Matthew 16:26. In the 1840s much of the Irish landscape bore a record of the island's history, or rather a history of its people. Many Dublin street names catalogued the various aristocratic families that had dominated Irish life in the preceding century. Meanwhile, place names in the rural landscape frequently told an older story of long-dead individuals who had shaped Irish history in times past. By the 19th century, these names in the landscape began to adopt a somewhat cosmopolitan feel. After the ban on Catholics joining the armed forces was lifted in the 1790s, Recruiters found that the poverty and lack of opportunity endemic in rural Ireland had created a large reservoir of ready recruits. Indeed, such was their success that Irishmen quickly accounted for 30% of British Army manpower. Their experiences in far-flung corners of the world were soon recorded in place names back home. Dublin streets led the way, with Blenheim Street, Fontenoy Street and Waterloo Road all recalling European battlefields where Irish soldiers had fought in the 18th and early 19th centuries. By the 1840s, the new place names evoked even more distant battlefields. In 1842, the Khyber Pass, a narrow defile between Pakistan and Afghanistan, captured the popular imagination after a retreating British force was routed in the valley. Evocative accounts had been published in the press and numerous locations across Ireland were named after the iconic pass in the Hindu Kush, including a hotel in the seaside resort of Dawkey in 1847 and the V Valley in South Tipperary with its dramatic landscape and steep hills on either side. Then, for very different reasons, the townland of Doherty in County Roscommon was also dubbed the Khyber Pass. The area lacked the mountainous terrain of South Tipperary or the rocky escarpments surrounding Dawki. It was in fact unremarkable and relatively flat. The Cork examiner noted that it is called the Khyber Pass as a police station had been lately placed in the vicinity owing to the many outrages previously perpetrated there. While it had earned a lawless reputation, the main thoroughfare through Doherty still saw considerable traffic it was the fastest route between the county town of Roscommon and Strokestown, the most important settlement in the northeast of the county. The alternative route was twice as long. For those seeking the fastest route between Roscommon Town and Strokestown, the pass was their only option. This might serve to explain the somewhat ill-conceived decision that saw two men board a horse and carriage in Roscommon town and set off down the Khyber Pass, for Strokestown on the 3rd of November, 1847. That late in the year, darkness had already descended as their driver urged the horses on. His passengers, Dennis Mahon, a local landlord, and Dr. Terence Shanley, the local physician, securely shielded from the cold night air by the state-of-the-art Britska carriage Their conspicuous vehicle, though, offered little anonymity for the wealthy passengers. As the solitary carriage passed through the darkness of the countryside, its size alone marked it out. In Roscommon in 1847, a county devastated by famine, few other than the local landlord, Mahan could afford such transport. As it approached the Khyber Pass around six o'clock, those lying in wait along the road, easily recognised who they were looking for. Unbeknownst to its occupants, crouched in a low position along the grassy verge was a man waiting silently for the carriage. As it passed along an isolated stretch, the darkness was momentarily broken by the flash and piercing echo of two gunshots. The bullets ripped through the wooden frame of the carriage and as the timber splintered, Dennis Mahan cried out and slumped in his seat. The landlord had been shot in the chest and though Dr Shanley tried desperately to help, there was nothing to be done. Mahan died on the roadside in the darkness of the Khyber Pass. In the following hours as his body was brought back to Strokestown, news of his murder spread throughout the countryside. A predictable reaction saw bonfires start to appear across the landscape, illuminating the night sky for miles around. In what was a macabre celebration, the people of North Roscommon were welcoming the news that the widely reviled Mahan was dead. The famine conditions that had ravaged Ireland since 1845 had affected Strokestown in particular. Many held Mahan personally responsible, given he had evicted starving, impoverished tenants. Such were the levels of animosity that strength of feeling did not abate in the following days. As Dennis Mahan's widow and daughter planned his funeral, they were offered no succour by the people of North Roscommon. When he was laid to rest, fears that his funeral might be targeted, so large numbers of police lined the roads surrounding Strokestown. Details of the service were not shared with the public in advance, and once he had been interred in the family crypt, behind the walls of his family estate, the mourners rapidly departed Strokestown. None were willing to risk travelling through the surrounding area after dark. The affair engendered a bitter enmity in the Mahon family towards the people of Roscommon. Within six days of the murder, they had taken out advertisements in national newspapers announcing the sale of all stock, crops and equipment. Pretty much everything bar the family home and the land itself was being put up for sale. Mahan's only child, his recently married daughter Grace, left Strokestown vowing never to return, a pledge she maintained until she drew her final breath in 1914. While his family fled, Dennis Mahon's murder sparked fears among similar landed families in the region. Soon local rumours claimed that a list of 12 other targets, all landlords in Roscommon, like Dennis Mahon, had been drawn up. Others hinted that all landlords and their agents in North Roscommon were going to be murdered and the hysteria spread far beyond Connacht. When a large house near the Khyber Pass was put up for auction at a sale in Dublin, bidding collapsed once it emerged that it was located close to where Dennis Mahon had infamously been shot. Few were willing to live in the county. Such hysteria was not surprising, given that in some quarters at least, reports surrounding the killing had been stripped of all context. Queen Victoria herself, for example, voiced the racial stereotypes many would fall back on to explain the murder when she confided in her diary that a shocking murder has again taken place in Ireland. Major Mahan, who had entirely devoted himself to being of use to the distressed Irish, was shot when driving home in his carriage. Really, they are a terrible people. The reality of the situation was somewhat more complex. Dennis Mahon was far from the idealised, benign, patriarchal landlord, the Queen, considered him to be. Mahon himself had known his decisions in the months leading up to his murder may have put his life at risk and had even taken to carrying a gun with him wherever he went. Born in 1787... Dennis Mahan was something of an unlikely landlord. His grandfather, Baron Hartland, had owned the vast Strokestown estate, which stretched over 10,000 acres centred around the mansion, Strokestown Park House. On his death, the house and land had passed to his eldest son, Dennis Mahan's uncle, a move which appeared to eliminate Dennis from the line of succession. Assuming he would never inherit, Dennis Mahon had instead pursued a career in the military, rising to the rank of major. Back in Roscommon, events took a somewhat unexpected course in his absence. In 1835, his uncle died, leaving the entire estate to his only child, Morris Mahon. But within 12 months, Morris was declared insane, and the issue of inheritance was complicated by the fact that he had no heirs. This would see Dennis Mahon and his first cousin contest the matter before the courts while the running of the estate was overseen by the court of Chancery. Eventually the courts found in Dennis Mahon's favour and he finally inherited the family estate in late 1845. While the estate was theoretically worth a considerable amount of money, like many similar estates in Ireland it had suffered from decades of mismanagement and was in a perilous state on the eve of the Great Hunger. The decades of war that had followed, the French Revolution of 1789, had created something of a bubble in the rental market. High prices for agricultural goods and soaring rents had incentivized subdivision. This had seen farms broken into smaller and smaller plots to maximise rental income. But when peace finally returned to Europe in 1815, the wartime economic bubble burst. Irish agriculture having reorientated itself to suit the needs of a Britain at war needed major restructuring. While astute landlords began amalgamating small holdings into large farm units that were more productive, profitable, and economically sustainable, the Mahan estate had been one of many that suffered from chronic mismanagement. While Morris Mahan had never been in a position to manage the estate due to his poor mental health, his father before him, Baron Hartland, had been a reckless spendthrift. He had borrowed considerable sums of money to carry out extensive renovations to the family home. This financial profligacy encumbered the Strokes Town estate with debts of £30,000, a sum that was nearly three times the total annual rental income it generated from the tenantry. Meanwhile, the management of the estate's land had been disastrous. When it had been taken over by the Court of Chancery in 1836, the officials appointed had little appetite to carry out the reforms needed. Because of this, the situation facing Dennis Mahon in 1845 was considerable. As court administrators had taken little interest in the estate, the subdivision of lands had continued relentlessly. Theoretically, there were 745 tenants on the estate, but this masked the large number of subtenants. There were nearly 12,000 people living on the land. In many cases, these people sublet land, which was in turn sublet from the legal tenants. Furthermore, as was common in such cases, many tenants had stopped paying rent when the estate was taken over by the courts in 1836 and arrears to the tune of £13,000 had accumulated. Though the problems Dennis Mahan faced were acute, they were not unique. It has been estimated that one estate in 12 was insolvent and facing bankruptcy on the eve of the Great Hunger. Indeed, the landlord class across the United Kingdom was deeply indebted. In England, in the mid-19th century, 50% of all rental income was being used to service debts. By 1845, the Devon Commission, an investigative commission of the British government, had carried out years of research into Irish agriculture and its recommendations pointed to several potential solutions. While farms would need to be amalgamated, the authors of the report warned that those who would need to be evicted in order to make this happen couldn't simply be cast aside. They advocated a range of options, from widespread public works to alleviate distress, to reclamation of wasteland for new farms and emigration schemes for those wishing to leave Ireland. Less than 12 months after these recommendations from the Commission, Dennis Mahan finally inherited the Strokestown estate. And although he planned to tackle the problems facing it, his ambitions were overtaken by broader social crises. By 1846, starvation and disease ravaged the estate. The same year, a petition from the people of Clunahi, three kilometres north of Strokestown, illustrated the growing desperation of the populace. Our families are really and truly suffering. We cannot withstand their cries for food. We have no food for them because our potatoes are rotten. We fear the peace of the countryside will be much disturbed if relief be not more extensively afforded to the suffering peasantry. This, however, ended with an implicit threat that the people were on the brink of violence. We are not joining anything illegal or contrary to the laws of God or the land unless pressed by hunger. Dennis Mahon's own cousin in Roscommon wrote to him in August 1846 informing him of developments in the region. Matters look very threatening in Roscommon. Last week a large assemblage paraded near Castlereagh with a loaf on a pole and a placard, food or blood. Nevertheless Dennis Mahon remained determined to restructure the estate which was hemorrhaging money. Recognizing that the scale of the problems needed outside expertise, he hired professional land agents from Dublin. They appointed his own cousin, John Ross Mahan, as agent. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Arriving in Strokestown, Ross Mahon took a new approach and his first act was to survey the entire estate before identifying its problems and advocating solutions. His conclusion was alarming. The estate, he said, was in such bad shape that it would be better to leave it lie idle than allow the vast majority of the tenants who were paupers to continue living on the land. This meant one thing, Eviction. While his claim was certainly dramatic, it was rooted in a logic that was prevalent at the time. Many tenants were in no position to afford food, let alone pay rents, and by 1847 the trajectory and pace of events in London were incentivizing eviction. In early 1847 the British government's intervention in the famine in Ireland was at its most effective. They had ditched the disastrous public works programme which had in some areas aggravated the situation further by demanding the starving population carry out laborious tasks such as road building for wages too low to buy food. In its place they introduced the Temporary Relief Act. This oversaw the opening of thousands of soup kitchens across the island and by the summer of 1847 the number of deaths was in sharp decline. But this was only, as the name of the Act under which it was introduced, implied, temporary. It was designed simply to pave the way for what the government saw as the long-term solution. The British government increasingly wanted to absolve itself of financial responsibility for Irish famine relief. To this end, they decided that from the autumn of 1847, all famine relief was to be administered through Ireland's 130 poor law unions. The plan was a disaster from the outset. The poor law unions, which each administered one workhouse, had been designed to provide for around 100,000 people. But in 1847, three million or so Irish people were being fed by soup kitchens. Critically, they were funded by local taxation and, in the case of those too poor to pay, landlords were liable to pay the tax for their poorer tenants. In short, from the autumn of 1847... Irish landlords would face enormous tax bills which were relative to the number of their tenants who were unable to pay taxes. This decision by the government had catastrophic consequences. It had long been recognised that many estates needed to reduce the numbers of their tenants but landlords were now being incentivized to do this as rapidly as possible. If they evicted their poorest tenants their tax bill would drop rapidly. This had not been lost on the architects of the plan in London. Those with their hands on the levers of power were coming to the conclusion that the famine was a unique historic opportunity to reorganise the entire agricultural economy. The influential treasury civil servant Charles Edward Trevelyan outlined this view in late 1847. Posterity will trace up to that famine the commencement of a salutary revolution in the habits of a nation long singularly unfortunate. The Devon Commission, which reported its findings in 1845, had warned about the difficulties in reorganising Irish agriculture, acknowledging it would be a long and complex affair. Throwing this caution to the wind, the British government now saw in the famine a mechanism for rapid transformation. Such was the fervour of some of those in power in London that they believed the hand of God was at work. Trevelyan again explained... God grant that the generation to which this great opportunity has been offered may rightly perform its part and that we may not relax our efforts until Ireland fully participates in the social health and physical prosperity of Great Britain. To assist the likes of Dennis Mahan, legislation to aid with evictions was passed. The Gregory, or quarter-acre clause, stipulated that in order to receive aid from a poor law union, a person could not be in possession of a farm larger than a quarter of an acre of land. As most holdings were larger, the clear intention was to force the poor to choose between their farms on the one hand and receiving famine relief on the other, maintain their farm and starve, or relinquish it and receive famine relief. For most, this choice was no choice at all. That this would incur a huge human toll was not lost on those in power either. They saw it as inevitable. The master of Balliol College, Oxford, Benjamin Jowett, later recalled a conversation with the influential economist Nassau William Sr. I have always felt a certain horror of political economists since I heard one of them say that the famine in Ireland would not kill more than a million people and that would scarcely be enough to do much good the economists and politicians of Westminster didn't foresee that Dennis Mahon or his ilk would rank among the casualties. While these plans were passed in the British Parliament during the summer of 1847, in Strokestown, Dennis Mahon and John Ross Mahon were preparing to reduce the number of poor tenants and with it the tax bill the estate would be liable for. But the local population were not passive bystanders in this process. Strokestown was no different to other parts of Ireland and secret societies had long been active on the estate. Dennis Mahan, initially at least, tread carefully. Rather than launch major evictions straight away, he developed a scheme to ship thousands of his tenants to North America, a plan which was popular among those who wanted to leave but hadn't been able to afford the passage. Dennis Mahan showed a degree of magnanimity by waiving the debts of tenants who owed arrears. This allowed them to sell their possessions, providing them with some money to start afresh in North America. But the landlord was not acting with humanitarian motivations. While the emigration scheme cost £5,860, it had already been estimated that it would save the estate over £11,000 annually on poor law taxes, which would have had to be paid if those who left had ended up in the workhouse. To implement the plan, Dennis Mahon chartered four ships to North America, offering free passage, but in the weeks before the tenants departed, stark warnings reached Ireland of what lay ahead for these emigrants in Canada, where death rates were soaring in quarantine stations. This came in the form of a widely published letter from the Archbishop of Quebec, Joseph Signet, who pleaded with Irish archbishops and bishops to «Dissuade your diocesans from emigrating in such numbers to Canada» where they will but too often meet with either a premature death or a fate as deplorable as the heart-rending condition on which they groan in their unhappy country. Dennis Mahon's tenants were precisely the people Signe was referring to. Weakened by nearly two years of food shortages, they were in no position to undertake the rigours of a transatlantic voyage. The humanitarian warnings went unheeded in Roscommon. Travelling first to Liverpool, 1,490 emigrants from Strokestown boarded four ships in that port, the Virginius, the Aarons Queen, the Naomi and the John Munn. The conditions on board these ships were appalling and the predictions of Archbishop Signet materialised. Nearly half of those who had left Strokestown would never reach their destination alive, dying en route or in the quarantine stations on the St. Lawrence River in Canada Meanwhile, back in Ireland, Dennis Mahon continued with his drive to restructure the estate. His approach was the one advocated by Charles Trevelyan, who had suggested that a sharp but effective remedy was best for Ireland. While news of the terrible fate of those who had emigrated would not reach Ireland until the early autumn of 1847, Dennis Mahon had been busy serving eviction notices that would see another thousand people evicted. The situation facing these people was desperate. Eviction was not just the loss of a home. In most cases the house was attached to a small plot of land where the family grew the potatoes and crops that sustained them through the year. Some also reared a few animals that could produce cash when sold. In one fell swoop, eviction amounted to the loss of a home, a job and one's ability to feed oneself. In this eventuality, many were left with no alternative but the workhouse. While this was a humiliating experience at the best of times, by 1847 it was also extremely dangerous, with diseases running rampant in the overcrowded, unsanitary conditions inside the institutions. There was also a deep emotional loss for those being driven from their homes. It ran far deeper than Dennis Mahan's understanding of the situation, an economic equation to balance his accounts. An anonymous account from a tenant evicted from their home on an estate at Carrigallon in County Leitrim captured the deep-seated generational sense of loss. We all lived in peace in this village. We were never at law with each other. Our forefathers lived here for generations past. You would say, if you saw before this ruin came, that it was a nice little village, such concerns mattered little to Dennis Mahan, and his bailiffs set about carrying out evictions and then wrecking the homes of tenants so they could not be reoccupied. By late October, tensions were reaching boiling point in Strokestown. Although Dennis Mahan had cleared nearly a quarter of his tenants, he was still planning further evictions. As opposition mounted from the remaining tenants, the landlord was unmoved. Writing to his agent John Ross Mahon on the 2nd of November, he declared, I shall evict the whole and not one of them shall get land again. Less than 24 hours later, Dennis Mahon left Common Town after attending a local relief committee meeting where he had, somewhat ironically, argued for increased aid for his tenants. He never reached Strokestown alive, meeting his bloody end at the Khyber Pass. Initially, at least, the authorities received little or no help from the local people. Nevertheless, the hunt to find the culprits was relentless, with constables travelling to North America and England in their search for suspects. Despite a substantial Okay, folks, I'm going to cut in here and leave you with something to listen to in that chapter when you buy the book. You can find links in the notes below to the full audiobook that's nine and a half hours long, the e-book and the hardback as well. If you're overseas and want to get your hands on a hard copy, lots of Irish retailers do ship overseas and I have a full list of them in the links below as well. So don't wait around and get your hands on a copy today. Until next week, Sloan.